Well, we'll come to the time now in our service where we're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We will talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to the book of Romans? Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 798. Romans chapter 5, chapter numbers are the big black numbers. And when you found that, would you stand with me together? And we will read this passage through. We're reading verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. This is the defining sign of someone who is a child of God. We have God's spirit in us. It confirms to us that we are God's child. Verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing now on this time together as well in his word. Living God, as we come to your word now, we ask for open hearts, open ears to receive what it is you want to say to us through your word today. We believe that this word is a a living word. It's an active word. It's not just some ancient document written thousands of years ago. Because it was inspired by your spirit and that spirit is still alive today, it speaks to us and it accomplishes things. It is powerful. And I'm asking God that you would accomplish that purpose that you have for your word in each and every person here today. I believe each one of us is here for a reason, and you wanted to accomplish something in each of us, and I'm asking you to do it. You tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. William Hunting, some of you may know him as Will, was a troubled 20-year-old adolescent living in South Boston. He had grown up in an incredibly difficult family situation plagued by poverty, uh, alcoholism, physical abuse. He had already had an impressive police record as a juvenile, and 
uh, working odd jobs, a demolition uh, as, a, as a janitor, um, he, he just, just trying to make ends meet. He had no hope whatsoever of escaping this present reality. In fact, he pretty much accepted this as his lot in life. But one day, Will, he's involved in a street fight and mistakenly punches a police officer who's trying to break up the fight. So now, no longer a minor, Will faces real prison time in an adult penitentiary. Will is guilty. Will is powerless and with no hope whatsoever, and he knows it. And yet, in this very moment, devoid of hope, just at the right time, someone steps in in Will's defense and mediates what's called a deferred prosecution agreement, whereby he can avoid jail time if he meets certain agreed-upon requirements. Now, who would do that? Well, strangely enough, the man who steps in to help him is a world-renowned math professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. What? Why would that guy help someone like Will? Well, what you don't know about Will, but this math professor did, is that Will, despite his rough upbringing and even rougher profane exterior, is a mathematical genius. He's a savant who, who has this incredible brain for math, all hidden in the guise of a 20-year-old janitor who actually mops the floors in the math department at MIT so that he can continue to pursue this hidden profession, his hidden love for math. And following this unexpected introduction of hope in this courtroom, working with that professor as well as a, a talented counselor who grew up in much of the same circumstances as Will, Will goes on to a very different future than he ever could have hoped to experience otherwise. We're continuing in this series this morning, we started two weeks ago now, entitled, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him, reflecting on the lyrics of some well-known Christmas carols and seeing how those same truths are also reflected in God's Word all with the goal of doing three things, preparing our hearts well for the celebration of Christmas. Uh, we are leading us to appreciate more deeply the, the, the deep biblical truths that we sing when we sing these carols. But ultimately, most of all, my prayer is that as we do this, it would lead us, all of us, to adore Jesus, either for the first time or just more than we already do. So far, we've looked at the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We, we kind of reflected on the amazing uh, truth of the, the fullness of God veiled in the flesh of an infant baby Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, talking about how God takes notice of our groaning and accomplishes our rescue in sending Jesus as our deliverer. Today, I want to look at this carol, as we've already said, While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks by Night, it's uh, hymn 135 in that green hymn book, if you want to have that open as well and look at it. But what we're seeing here in the announcement of Jesus' birth to a band of shepherds on the outskirts of town, I think we're given a picture there of the unexpected hope of the gospel. Why was it so unexpected? Well, I mean, there's obvious reasons. Okay, you're out in the middle of a field and angels show up singing in the sky. That, that's 
That's not something that most of us would expect on any given day. And if it is, I would love to talk with you after the service. But I believe the hope of Jesus coming announced to those shepherds was unexpected for another reason. And a reason that, that might not be really obvious to us at first. And what I mean is this. The Greek storyteller Aesop is the first one known to record the well-known axiom, familiarity breeds contempt. Do you know this? Familiarity breeds contempt. The idea being that just seeing something too much, doing something too much, hearing it too much, over time can just steal away joy, wonder, awe that, that we used to feel when we experienced that thing. Over time it just becomes meh, whatever. And what I'm saying is that Christmas, the story of Christmas, unfortunately, can breed such a contemptuous familiarity in all of us because we just, we just heard it so much. It's kind of become, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And yet, there's many important things that we miss with such a familiarity of the Christmas story. And as it relates to this carol we're looking at this morning, it can cause us to miss something devastatingly revealing but also powerfully transformational about the Christmas story, namely this, the scandalous, the audacious nature of the angelic announcement to shepherds. Unexpected, not simply because of the surprise of it, but because of who these shepherds are. In this particular cultural time and time period, because you see shepherds, Shepherds in the first century, they were the will huntings of the day. That, that's who they were. They were uh, rough, dirty, uh, ceremonially unclean, socially outcast by pretty much every other facet of society, except maybe other shepherds. And considering the angelic announcement of such importance, such gravity, this is the announcement time. This is God saying, I'm sending myself in the flesh here in this infant baby boy i'm coming to earth i'm coming to redeem you this hugely important announcement coming to these guys this is the very last people you'd expect this message to be given to and the message uh, that we read in the words of this carol themselves which pretty much just states almost verbatim what we read in luke 2 about the angelic announcement we've heard it Stated, it states the words so matter-of-factly. It's just like, yeah, the angels came, delivered the message, they went. Isn't it amazing? It just says it so matter-of-factly. And we've heard it so many times. We can lose sight of how truly unexpected this hope would have been for those shepherds. And yet, the more you read this book, this Bible, the more you see just how common it is for God to do unexpected things. He does it all the time. And in the passage that we just read here this morning, Romans chapter 5, what we're going to see is that according to the Apostle Paul, all of humanity, everyone, you, me, everyone, living in rebellion and contempt towards our Creator, we should also be as unexpecting of the hope being offered in the angels' announcement ourselves, as Will hunting in that courtroom, as those shepherds bedding down in the fields outside Bethlehem. We all, all of us, stand guilty before God. We are all powerless and without hope to save ourselves. The only difference between 
that and for many of us and, and will hunting in those shepherds is that we don't know it yet. Or maybe we did know it, but we've just forgotten it over the years. So in order to help us always see and appreciate the really scandalous nature of the angelic announcement to those shepherds whenever we sing this carol, but also to help us understand just how scandalous and unexpected it is that we should receive the hope of the gospel ourselves, I want to look at this passage in three ways with you this morning. I want to look at justified hope for sinners, unexpected, or, or sorry, reconciled hope for enemies, and then finally, rejoicing in hope, suffering in God. Okay. Justified hope for sinners, reconciled hope for enemies, rejoicing in hope, suffering in God. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that passage in Romans chapter 5? Follow along with me as we consider the unexpected hope of Jesus coming. So let's look first of all at justified hope for sinners. Justified hope for sinners. Now, if you grew up in North America anyways, you're very likely familiar with that scene from Charlie Brown Christmas where Charlie Brown is having that small personal meltdown at the, at the, the, the angst of just not knowing what is Christmas about? What is the point? What, what, what are we doing here? To which his friend Linus, the blanket holder, uh, uh, somehow just quotes for him, basically verbatim the first half of Luke 2, somehow just memorizing large chunks of Scripture was a thing for Linus, and he quotes the first half of Luke 2 and says that that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And that first half of Luke 2, what it's accounting, is, it's recounting, is exactly, again, the words we sing in this carol while shepherds watch their flocks by night. It's just telling this story. These shepherds are out in the field. Skies open up. There's angels saying, there's good news. Come and see this baby, this Savior who's been born. I want to just quickly recount or, or just read again some of that angelic announcement. I'm not going to read all of it, but in case you weren't listening when Nathan and Sabrina were reading, or maybe it's just been a while since you've seen Charlie Brown Christmas. Let's just read this again quickly, some, of, some parts of it. Luke 2, verse 8. Luke writes this. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now again, this is familiar territory to us, particularly if you grew up in church. You, you've heard this. But as I already pointed out a minute ago, what might not be familiar to you is the social standing of those people to whom this announcement is given. It's often a part you don't hear about in this Christmas story. I mean, shepherds. Shepherds. They, they, they were a shunned people group. They, they were outcasts in this day and age. Again, considered ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law, so they couldn't even go to the temple to worship with their fellow Jews. Just basically stay out in the field, please. Therefore, although they hadn't committed any crime per se, 
according to the Jewish court of public opinion anyways, they were guilty and excluded from, from a polite, respectable Jewish company as well as from the presence of God. And here's the thing. They knew it. They, they, they knew they were. Both because they understood Jewish laws and customs, but also because my guess is they were reminded of it pretty often. Anytime maybe they tried to rise above that status of, of who they were and where they were, they were just reminded, you go over here. That's where you go. They knew they were excluded. And they had no hope of escaping this social or religious isolation. And yet, this is what's so scandalous about it. When God chooses to send this announcement, rather than appearing to kings coming to the religious elite of the day, God chooses to announce this good news of great joy, literally in the Greek, evangelion, the gospel, the gospel of good news for great joy. He brings it first to shepherds, to the social outcasts, the lowest on the totem pole. He brings the announcement to them first. Repeatedly addressing the announcement. I don't know if you noticed as we read that, how many times God uses the personal pronoun you for unto you is born this day. You will find him. Long before he ever says, oh yeah, and it's also for everyone else as well. He brings it to them personally. It's a picture of staggering grace and condescension on God's part to make these shepherds the very first recipients of this gospel of great joy, let alone make them recipients at all. And when we come to our passage in Romans 5 here, I think it's clear Paul intends to describe a similarly staggering picture as it relates to us. Look again back there in Romans 5 at verse 1 and 2. Paul begins by saying this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, clearly, I don't have time to go through all of this, but beginning with that word, therefore, Paul intends to refer to everything he's just said in the first four chapters of Romans. Literally, he's saying, in light of everything I've just said over here, here's my point. Now, we don't have time to go through that. I'm, I would love to, but I'm sure you would maybe not love it. So, he, I'm going to try to summarize for us in the most general of terms the first four chapters of Romans, okay? First of all, in a very large sense, what Paul is presenting in the first four chapters of Romans is that because of our sin, because we have sin, both we are sinners both by nature and by choice, whether we know it or not, all of mankind, we stand guilty. We stand guilty before a holy God. We're condemned under His just wrath, and we are powerless and without hope of escaping that judgment on our own. But... Along with that hard truth, another one of the big themes of those first four chapters of Romans, Paul has labored to announce an equally glorious gospel of great joy by showing us how in the sending of Jesus to earth in human form to, to perfectly obey the law of Moses and then to substitute himself as a lamb of God in our place for our sin, God has paid the just penalty for our sin that we could never pay for ourselves. Now, how do, how do we access that payment so that it can be applied to us? Well, all through Romans, I mean, all through all Paul's letters, he's going to say we access that payment by faith. 
by faith alone. That's how we access that payment. By placing our trust fully, not in our own efforts to achieve the the payment for that debt, but in Jesus' fully sufficient effort on the cross. That's what he was doing on the cross. He was paying our debts. That's what Paul's getting at there in verse 1. Look again where he says, we are justified through faith. It's faith that brings about that justification. Justification is, is a legal term. A legal term that just means without guilt. You are not guilty. We achieve a not guilty status by faith in Jesus. So, to put it back in that terms of, of will hunting, standing on the, the, the stand here before the judge, spiritually speaking, before we put our faith in Jesus, that's all of us. Every one of us. We all stand guilty, powerless before the judge of the universe. Okay, that's partly what Paul's trying to describe there in verses 6 through 8. Look back there now with me. Describes us in three ways. First of all, he says we're powerless. Standing on that justice stand before the judge, we are powerless. Now, he's not talking necessarily about our physical strength compared to God's, although that's different too. He's speaking of our, our moral strength. We are unable to live according to God's law ourselves. We're powerless to live it out. We keep failing at it. He describes us as ungodly, which is not necessarily meaning that we're not like God, even though we're not. He's describing someone who is in willful opposition to God. Finally, describing us as sinners, meaning those who by nature and choice are guilty of breaking God's laws. We haven't lived up to his standard, and therefore we are worthy of his just judgment. And yet, even as bleak and devastating as that picture is, over and over again, Paul shows us Jesus' unexpected announcement and his unexpected enactment of gospel hope. Mediating for us before the judge of the universe, not just a deferred prosecution, but a full pardon. By his death on our behalf. We have a full pardon as guilty sinners because of Jesus, what he did. This is the unexpected hope for justification. Announced and available to all who will put their faith in Jesus. Freely available to any and all who will receive it. And it's a pardon that that Paul says in verse 6 there, look again, that came just at the right time. You couldn't write it any better than this. It came just at the right time, at that moment when we were most in need, and when we were standing hopeless and guilty before the judge of all, and he was about to lower his gavel in sentence. It was at that moment that Jesus does the unexpected, and he steps forward for those who are unworthy and deserving of that justice and says, wait. He says, no, I'm going to take that place. I'm going to take that place myself. And he offers us grace instead. Which is what Paul's talking about in verse 2 there when he says, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We no longer stand under the justice of God. We now stand in his grace when we put our faith in Jesus. We have access to it now. Maybe we could see it, but we had no hope of reaching it. Jesus, when we put our faith in him, it opens the glass case so that we now have access into this grace and we can stand in it now. 
because of what he did. And that is the thing. That's the point that so many of us don't get or that we're just prone to forget so often. We, all of us today, we are as worthy of receiving that grace and standing in it as those shepherds watching over their flocks at night or will hunting standing on before that judge. But the unexpected hope of the gospel announced in Jesus coming to earth means that although we had nothing to expect but God's judgment, condemnation, God offered us instead good news of great joy. I bring you good news, a gospel of grace, a gospel of pardon, freely available to you. Now, that in itself is reason enough for joy when you think about the unexpected of hope of being offered a full pardon when we are guilty by the coming of Jesus to earth. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation before where you've been caught you're just being caught and you know you're guilty. You have no hope of escape, but then someone offered you grace instead. I know I have, and it was profound to me. One of the things you learn as you look deeper into the meaning of Christmas in particular, or just Christianity in general, you've, you find the unexpected hope of Jesus coming to earth is not only that he came to accomplish our pardon, it's also about reconciling a broken relationship. That's what I want to show you next in our passage as we look at reconcile hope for enemies. Reconcile hope for enemies. Now, one of the clearest places you see this is in verse 10 of the passage. Look there with me. Paul says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son... That's, that's how it was accomplished. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Do you, do you see how already that reconciliation, that's different than a pardon, right? Paul moves seamlessly from talking about justification, that's a legal term, to now talking about reconciliation. That's a, that's a relational term. That's a relational category now, right? I always want to remind us each time we talk about that word reconciliation, it always refers to a pre-existing relationship, okay? When you meet someone for the first time and develop a relationship with them, that's not reconciliation. It's only reconciliation when you have a relationship that's existed before that was broken, and then at some point it comes back together again. That's what reconciliation means, and whenever the Bible is talking about our reconciliation with God, one of the first places it's going to refer back to is Genesis. Back in the book of Genesis, talking about where our relationship with God was perfect, it was unbroken, but then it became broken when sin entered into the world. We could no longer be in the garden. We were expelled from God's presence. And from that day forward, all of us, all humanity continues in a state of a broken relationship with God, whether you recognize it as broken or whether you even believe there is a God. Our relationship with God, apart from Jesus, is broken, separated. Look again at verse 10 as well. Do you notice the word Paul uses to describe our broken relationship with God? Does he call us uh, the guilty ones while we were uh, uh, ungodly or sinners? He calls us enemies. Again, that's a relational term. That's a relational category. 
You know, you, you, if you're standing in a court of law, even if you're as guilty as can be, no judge is ever going to refer to you as his enemy. No, you're the, the, the defendant or the plaintiff, period. That, that's it. It's, there, there are no relational categories because justice has to be impartial. That's why Lady Justice, as she's sometimes referred to, is always wearing a blindfold or she's got her eyes closed or looking away from the scales of justice. It's not about relationship. It's just about which way do the scales tilt. Finally, a place I think you see these different categories moving from legal to relational that might be easy to miss, though, is in, again, that description that Paul gives of us in verses 6 through 8. Look there again. Verse 6 we see again, he, he's still using legal terminology, talking about the pardon of God off, that God offers for sinners in Jesus. But then look again what he says in verse 7 and 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now did you hear the shift take place from legal language to relational language? He moved from talking about dying for a righteous man to all of a sudden talking about possibly dying for a good man. Now all of a sudden I think that's where the shift begins to take place. And then finally, powerfully mixing the two categories together, talking about how God is demonstrating something. Literally, the word is giving evidence of something. What? What does God give evidence of? His justice? His righteousness? No. Of his own love for us. Verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners. While we were legally guilty. Christ died for us. Do you see it now? The unexpected hope of Jesus isn't just about announcing a pardon for us, a legal declaration of our justification, as great as that is all on its own. It's also about the hope of reconciliation, the demonstration of the love of God for us, even when we were being our most unlovable selves, while we were his enemies. So, there's a relational aspect as well as a legal aspect to this good news of great joy, which is also what you see demonstrated in this angelic announcement to the shepherds on that Christmas night. Because think about it, after the angel announces this good news of great joy, which is for you and all people, what happens next? Does the angel say, so there you go. Thanks for listening. Just carry on now with whatever it is you were doing. No, he, he invites them. He invites them. He gives them directions and tells them where to go and come basically into the hospital to see where this baby is just being born and come and celebrate the birth of this newborn Savior. Now, those of you who have had babies or have been there for that experience, who do you invite into the room just after you've given birth? Just anybody who's passing by? Uh, maybe people who've been pardoned of crimes. Do you say, those people, come on in. No, you, you invite in those you're in relationship with, a close family and friends. Do you see that? That's exactly what the angelic announcement was for those shepherd outcasts. And also what Paul is describing in Romans 5 as well. It's proof, the good news of great joy for all people, that these angels are announcing is coming in Jesus' birth, is not just hope 
for our legal part and our justification. It's also a hope of reconciliation. We are invited back into a family relationship with God, welcomed even while we were still his enemies. That's what's so unexpected about it. But we often forget that. We forget how unexpected it truly is. So that's justified hope for sinners, reconciled hope for enemies. The last thing I want to look at this morning is rejoicing in hope, suffering, and God. Rejoicing in hope, suffering, and God. Intertwined with all this talk about justification and reconciliation, Paul is talking about the way those two things cause us to rejoice, cause us to have joy in three other things, hope, suffering, and God. I want to look at each of those very briefly with you. First one we see in the second half of verse 2. He says there that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope. And then verse 5 tells us that that hope doesn't disappoint us. Now, the thing that we see here as we consider the justification and reconciliation that we have in Jesus is that this word hope in the Bible doesn't mean wishful thinking. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. It's not, I hope someday the Canucks could win a Stanley Cup. I sure hope it will snow on Christmas Day. That's not how the Bible means hope. Hope in the Bible means conviction about something. Convinced of it. We can easily see how joy would come from being convinced that this good news of great joy was, was true and that it truly had been applied to us. That, that's absolutely a reason for joy. Just as the, the shepherds, they, they were convinced that this message given to them was true and so they went to go and see this newborn Savior. second one comes in verse 3 there. Paul says, also we rejoice in our sufferings. Hmm, okay, now that's, that's a little harder for most of us to accept. Uh, both because we live in a culture that is passionately suffering averse, and also because, I don't know, if you read Paul very much, I don't know if you're like me, but most times Paul just seems to operate on a different level than most people when it comes to suffering. It just seems like he's impervious to it. Just like, what, bring it on. Like, I, I don't operate that way usually when it comes to suffering. But at the same time, there are some key places where we do see Paul talking about he, he is touched by it. He is deeply affected, crushed and broken down by suffering. Places like 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He talks about suffering so much that he's despairing even of life itself. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about his thorn in the flesh, which he's pleading three times for God to remove from him. And yet, in every single case... Paul also sees that suffering, he just sees it through different lenses. He sees it as something that is intended by God to grow and to shape him, to conform him to look more and more like Jesus. And I think that's exactly what he's trying to lay out for us here in our passage. So it's not that we enjoy suffering and we seek it out. Hey, how can I suffer today? No, but when suffering comes, and it does, it comes for all of us. When it comes, we can rejoice in it because we know, first of all, God will use it to develop our perseverance, our our spiritual endurance, our, our spiritual muscle, if you will. And then, as that happens, then he says it that that perseverance develops character. It causes us to grow to look more and more like Jesus as we grow in endurance. And then he says that those two things working together develop more hope in us, which as we now know, 
It's just a more confident trust in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. Finally, verse 11. Paul says we rejoice in God himself. We rejoice in God himself, which I take to mean when we consider this full pardon as well as this restored relationship that God made available to us in Jesus, it should lead us to greater and greater joy in our lives as we consider the great love that God must have for us, that he's given us clear evidence of to act this way toward us when we were his enemies. We had no reason to expect anything but judgment from him, and yet he offers us pardon. He offers us reconciliation. If you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, I want to ask you, first of all, is joy like that something that describes your life? Is joy something that describes your life, whether you're growing in your knowledge and trust of God, whether you are going through sufferings right now that are developing spiritual endurance and character to you, or whether you're just praising God for who He is and what He's done to accomplish your justification and to reconcile you. Does that bring about joy in your heart when you think of those things? Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying joy. By, when I say joy, I don't mean walking around, pretending to be happy, pasting a smile on your face, pretending to be just fine when you're actually getting crushed and pounded by life. That, that's not joy. That, that, that's a lie. I'm talking about true, true joy which I take to mean a settled contentment, a settled contentment in, in who you are in Christ as well as in your relationship with God. Whatever he grants or takes away from you, uh, a settled contentment in God that can't be disturbed, that can't be removed by people, circumstances, it's untouchable. I think that's what Paul had. He had something that was secure, that, that couldn't be touched by the circumstances of life. Do you, do you have joy like that when you consider what is being offered to us here? If, if what Paul is saying about what's offered to us in the coming of Jesus is, is true, that absolutely should develop an increasing joy in us as we come to know it and believe it more and more. And if you don't know Jesus that way, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Glad you could hear about who this Jesus is and what he came to do. My question for you is, when you hear about what's being offered to you in the coming of Jesus, doesn't the thought of finally, finally finding something or someone that you can truly rest the full weight of your expectation on and that won't disappoint you, won't keep letting you down, doesn't that sound so good? Aren't you tired of... of Pursuing another relationship, another house, another vacation, something else that eventually one day is going to let you down again. It's going to disappoint you. That won't fulfill you. Aren't you tired of that? The promise of God's word is that placing your hope here in this Jesus, this Savior that the angels are announcing, will never disappoint you. It's a hope that will never let you down. It's, it's worth taking that one last risk just to try. Because in finding Jesus, you'll find a hope and a joy that no other pursuit in this life could ever offer you. 
It really is secure. It really can sustain all the weight of your expectation. This is the unexpected hope of the good news of great joy offered in the angel's announcement to the shepherds that day. In light of that, can, can you ever sing this carol again without considering the profound condescension of God to send his birthday announcement to the most unlikely and unworthy of recipients? Or, in light of what we've seen here in Romans 5, can you ever sing this carol without seeing yourself as equally unworthy and undeserving to stand in such grace? When you think about God doing that, it sounds, it sounds dumb. It sounds foolish. Why would, he, why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense to us. If we truly are his enemies set against him and powerless to obey any of his commands, why on earth would he pardon us and reconcile us? Why would he do that? Well, as we said, the more you get to know this God of the Bible, the more you begin to expect him to do unexpected things because he's not like us. His love is perfect. His grace is perfect and profound. His forgiveness is true forgiveness. That's why it's unexpected, because we could never imagine doing that. His love is not like ours. And although there's lots of places where we have no idea, we've got no clue, no, no understanding as to why God would act this way towards us, I believe the reason that God would do this, that he would choose to reconcile his enemies, that he would choose to pardon those who were shaking their fist at him and wanted nothing to do with him. I think we do have the answer for that. It's given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read it to you. This is how I want to close this morning. This is why I think God would do this unexpected, hopeful action. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called, when, when, when God came to save you. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's why. That's why he would choose someone like you, someone like me, and, and rescue us and redeem us when we were totally unworthy of it because it just highlights the riches of his grace, the unexpected hope of a Savior who came to redeem you when you were at your very worst, to demonstrate his love for you. That's the unexpected hope of Christmas. Let's pray.